0: And we're glad you're here today. Grab your Bibles, go to Isaiah 64, Isaiah 64. We're continuing our series this morning called Rain Down, and we are uh, spending some time in these days praying for revival, asking God to move uh, in a fresh way with a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that's really what revival is. Let me give you a definition of revival as you're turning there. Uh, revival is a special visitation of God's presence that brings supernatural life and power to the church. That's what it is. It's a special visitation of God's presence that brings um, supernatural life and power um, to the church. And this is what we're after. This is what we're asking God for. And this is what we need. The church in America, by and large, has been in a, a season of spiritual drought. Uh, there's been a barrenness and, uh, in the church in America, and we, we're no exception to that. We, we need a fresh move of God to rain down on us, to bring the waters of revival, to bring fresh life into our church. Um, I'll illustrate it like this. If, if this. This week at my yard, I'm sure you experienced this. Uh, Monday started, and my yard was pretty brown. It's been in a, a season of um, barrenness, we would call it. It's been in a dormant state. For quite some time but as the temperatures rose on, on Monday and as the rains fell, something happened in my yard. All of a sudden blades of grass began to turn green. And then like by a few hours, like you could almost watch it turn green. And it would all of a sudden more grass turn green. And now I gotta go home and cut my grass. Uh, because it got woke up. It's, it's, it's vibrant now and it's growing when just a few days ago it was brown and dried up and in a state of, of barrenness. And so he, here's the point. He, here's what we need. What we need is for the Holy Spirit to rain down the waters of revival so that the church of Jesus that has been barren or has been dormant might be made alive again. That we might grow spiritually and see the power of God unleashed in us, and really, this is this is the prayer we should be praying for the church at large in, in America. This should be the heart cry of every church that we would see God do this. As you study revival, I've been able to do this this last year, reading different books about spiritual awakenings and revival. One of the things that I've discovered is that through history of the church, you've seen different cycles where the church would come to a barren place, a dormant place, a lifeless place, and. And sin would creep into the church that would kind of snuff out the work of the Lord, and God would withdraw his spirit um, from moving in fresh and powerful ways, and the church would begin to recognize the powerlessness that it was walking in. And there would be a few people who would sense a brokenness over that and begin to call the church to pray, and the church would then begin to pray, and then God would pour himself out in revival and would bring fresh life that would lead to spiritual awakening in the community. And then over years, the church then would kind of drift back into sin and then get back into that spiritual state, and then God would rise up another generation to begin to call on the name of the Lord, and this has been the cycle of the church for the last 2,000 years, and there's, there's a couple of things that I want you to know. Number one, there has never been a spiritual awakening without prayer. Number two, there's never been a spiritual awakening or revival without a recognition of the sin that keeps God from moving the way that he wants to move, those are a, necess- a necessity, and as I've, I've read different authors, there are different people that I've come across that just have a, a way of articulating the need of revival. One of those is a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a great uh, theologian and, and author, wrote a lot of books, and one book in particular called Revival I've been reading uh, off and on this past year. And in the foreword of his book, uh, another theologian by the name of J.I. Packer actually wrote the foreword describing Dr. Martin lloyd Jones's passion for revival and why he was a man who so wanted God to move in this way. And this is what J.I. Packer says about Martin Lloyd-Jones, about revival. This is what he says. He says, the divine visitation that revives, he argued, cannot be precipitated by human efforts. Even though our not caring about it and not seeking it can effectively quench the spirit and block it. Now notice what he says here. He says that basically human effort can't cause revival. That, that revival is not something that can be man-manufactured, but he, what he does say is, is that while man can't manufacture revival, man can certainly get in the way of revival, either passively by not pursuing it or by not dealing with what we need to deal with, which would block it from coming. He goes on to say, to acknowledge our present impotence and cry to God for such a visitation as he saw it a supreme priority for the church today. But we shall not do this until we grasp the need for revival. And that will not happen until we see that nothing less can help us. In other words, yeah, Pecker is communicating the heart of Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is this, is that the the highest importance for the church today, and it is as true today as it was the day that this was proclaimed, is that the highest need for the church today is for revival, for a, a divine visitation of God to bring a spiritual awakening to the hearts of his people. And he says, but this will not happen until we seek revival, but we will not seek revival until we recognize that only revival will help. That that's the hope of the church, And I would just submit to you today that the the hope of the church and the hope of America, I believe, is a revived church. What we're seeing in culture today and the things that are going on, listen, this is not because of the sin of culture. It's because of the absence of the power of God in the life of his church. And so as the church experiences revival, it will impact the culture and and prayerfully, almost every time there's been a major revival, there's also been spiritual awakening in the culture at large. Are you with me? And so this is what we're after in this uh, series. This is what we need. And this is what Isaiah is dealing with in Isaiah 64. Uh, Isaiah is, is facing a season in the life of Israel where they are spiritually in a season of barrenness. They are spiritually dormant. And uh, because of their sin, sin has created a barrier between them and the presence and the power of God. God has withdrawn his spirit, and now they are in this place of spiritual dryness, spiritual drought, and they're needing an outpouring of God's spirit. And Isaiah is recognizing the sinful condition that has led them to this place. And he's trying to confront this with the people and and certainly he is, in the passage today, we're gonna confront this with God of, of recognizing where we are. But Isaiah, realizing where the people were because of their sin, it caused him to cry out in verse number one in chapter 64, he says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is a prayer revival. Oh, would you pull back the curtains of heaven and would you rain down your spirit upon us that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil to make your name known to our adversaries and the nations might tremble at your presence. What Isaiah is recognizing is is that our sin has created such a barrier between us and God that revival is our only hope and he's declaring, oh, would you rend the heavens? Would you rip this barrier that stands between us and you and would you rain down with revival so much that not only do you transform us but even your enemies become worshipers of you. And I'll just tell you, listen to me, this is what we need as a church. This is what you need in your life. And this is what we need in our country. We need God to rend the heavens and fall on the church with such power that his presence makes any barrier that stands between us and him disappear so that then through the church, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we might see a nation come alive in Christ. Amen? Amen? So here is a question. This is what we're gonna do with today. Here's the question we've got to ask ourselves. So Isaiah is getting honest before the Lord. You're gonna see he's gonna get really honest, way more honest than we get most of our time in our life. This is what we're hoping that we get this week. But Isaiah is gonna come really honest with the Lord about the sinful condition. He knows that the, that the nation has abandoned him. He knows that the nation has sinned against him. Yet, even though he knows where they are spiritually, he has the audacity to get in God's presence and say, Would you send revival? And the question we need to ask is Man, what gives him such confidence? Like, how could this man know the spiritual condition, know that God owes them nothing, still come before him and cry out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down? That question being answered is important, and I'm glad you're asking that question now. So let's answer the question. All right, verse four if you're there, say, I'm there. Verse four, Isaiah answers the question. He tells us why he has such confidence to cry out for revival despite their sin. He says this. He says, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No, I has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet with him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. I want you to listen to the answer of this. Uh, Isaiah says, Man, we can look through history, and here's what we would come to the conclusion, that no eye has seen and no ear has heard of a God like our God, the true and living God. That there's no other God that we could have imagined in all of human history who has a desire to draw near to his people and to act on their behalf. Now I want you to hear the answer to the question, what would give Isaiah such boldness to cry out to God for revival despite their sin? And here's the answer, He knows the character of God. Isaiah is recognizing that we have a God, check this out, church, who longs to move on behalf of his people. We have a God who loves us and he wants to act on our behalf. And so Isaiah is approaching the throne of grace and he's crying out to God on the basis of the character of God. He knows they are not worthy, but he knows that God is still good. And therefore, he comes with confidence. He doesn't ask for it on the merit of their goodness, because he knows there is none. He doesn't try to put conditions of saying, hey, we've done these things, and so God, now you owe us, because he knows that God doesn't. No, he goes and says, God, I'm, I'm asking this because I know your character, and you're a God who loves us, and you want to move in our life with power. So church, let me just encourage you, as we seek the face of God this week, as we spend a week of fasting and praying, of running after the Lord, asking him to purify us so that we might be in the position of of receiving an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as we are a church that's on our face week in and week out, calling on the name of the Lord for revival, I want you to know the confidence that we have to call on the Lord this week and any week after this week is this, is the character of God. We are not begging God to do something he doesn't wanna do. We don't have to coerce him, convince him, talk him into it. No, his nature is that he is such a loving, gracious God that he desires to act on our behalf so we can have confidence this week as we go and say, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We can do it with boldness because we are actually praying something that's in line with the character of God. Now, this should stir our hearts to wanna pray, amen? Amen. Do you realize, listen to me, Like, you don't have to become this great person of eloquent prayer trying to convince God to move. He doesn't need that, doesn't require that, doesn't demand that. He wants to meet with his people. That's his character. Now, with his character of wanting to draw near, his character also demands that we draw near to him on his terms. So we gotta understand that that while he desires to move into sin revival... He wants to show himself and act on our behalf. Because his, of his character, he also demands that we meet him on his terms. You say, What do you, what do you mean? Look at the text again. He says this, uh, verse four. He says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, do you see it here? So the character of God is He wants to move, but He also demands, because of His character, that we meet Him on His terms. I'll illustrate it like this with my kids. I've said this before. I, I got some great kids, but I- I've said this before. My kids are shameless when it comes to asking me and their mother for stuff. Like they don't even blush, not even a little bit. We were at the at the mall the other night. My son uh, Noah, he's Growing like a weed, and we can't keep shoes on his feet and pants on him. We, like every time he comes downstairs, I feel like that is there's this much gap between the floor and his and his pants, and uh, and so we were needing to get some some clothes. Now the op, the word that's important there is needed to do this. All right, you know sometimes you just buy stuff because you want to. Then this is because we needed to, right? And so we were going because he needed pants. And so my youngest, uh, it was my wife and I, my youngest daughter, and then Noah, we were walking through the, through the mall and we were looking at different clothes and he's needing some clothes. Well, then my, like, like my younger one, Moo, she's off like over there in the girls' section and she's pulling stuff off and she's looking at it and she's wanting to go try stuff on. And we're like, hey, baby girl, we love you, but this ain't about you. This trip is for your brother who needs clothes. You don't have that problem right now. And so, but and she was like, oh, I know, Can I buy this? Like didn't even hesitate. Like didn't even like, it didn't process her. She's like, I know it's not about me, but I know you, Dad, and you can't say no to me. So here's the question in that moment when she knows it's not about her, not for her, she still holds up the outfit and says, what about this? By the way, she's probably wearing it today because guess what? She was right. What would give her the nerve She knows the character of her father. She knows that her mother and I, we love to bless them. We love to give them things. We love to show our love for them. Like so she didn't even, she wasn't even like trying to work up like you owe me. It was just like, Dad I know you wanna buy this for me. And I'm like, you're kinda right with confidence because she knows we love to bless them. But they also understand that there are boundaries that are in place that would cause the blessings that we want to pour out on them to be restrained. So for instance, if they're disrespectful to their mother and they're acting like a fool to their brother and sister and, and they're, 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 they're perpetually in this state, there are times where we will withhold the blessing that we want to give them and we will say, no, you can't have that because we're restrained. It's not that in that moment our character has changed of desiring and wanting to bless them, but their behavior has restrained the blessing that we want to give them to be received by them. You following me here? And this is what Isaiah is dealing with. He's saying, until you, until you understand, God's character is that he wants to move in your life. He wants to pour his power upon you. He wants his presence to be with you. But listen, if you don't meet him on his terms, your behavior, the sin that's undealt with, you're gonna restrain his goodness in your life. And it's not that his character hasn't changed. It's that you've not met him on his terms. Notice what he says here. He says, the blessings of presence and power of God it's, accept, it's accessible by those, and here's three things. He says, first of all, who humbly wait for him. Who humbly wait for him. It's literally what he says, who wait for him. Like To wait on, on the Lord means to seek him and to place our trust in him, to stay in a posture of humility until he moves. I wanna, I wanna make sure you understand, when we talk about the scripture over and over and over again gives us this, 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 gives us this command, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And I want you to hear me say waiting on the Lord is not passive, it's actually active. Waiting on the Lord is when you assume the posture of receiving, acknowledging He's in the position of giving. Waiting on the Lord means that I am trusting him. And so I'm actively seeking his face, calling on his name, praying, asking for him to move in my life. And then I understand that God will move when he wants and how he wants. Therefore, I stay in that position of going, God, I'm the one in need. And so I'm gonna stay surrendered, submitted to you, humbling myself before you until you move in the way that you wanna move in my life. It's not forcing the hand of God. A lot of times we, we call on the name of the Lord and then we try to do things in our own power. We, we really know what we want God to do and it's really not that we want God to do what he wants to do. We want God to do what we want him to do and therefore we just kind of get ahead of God and do our own thing and then go, God, would you bless it on the back end? Waiting on the Lord sometimes takes time. So this is one of the reasons our prayer on Wednesday night is so essential. Every single week we are coming together and we're spending an hour, an hour and a half, we are pressing pause on life just to get before the Lord and saying, we're waiting on you. We're going to seek your face, we're going to knock on heaven's door, we're going to call on the name of the Lord, and we're going to wait, and you're going to move in ways, and we're going to pray for revival, and listen, we've been in this thing a year and a half, God has been moving, we've not seen revival like we've been praying for, you know what we're going to do? We're going to continue to wait, but that waiting is not just passive sitting by, we are going to actively wait on the Lord by calling on his name, and moving in step, and doing what he says, and wherever he guides us, we're going to keep in step, because when he decides that he's going to pour out his spirit in the way that we're asking, we are Going to be in the position to receive it. The, the best illustration I can give you is a biblical illustration. Uh, when God's people were delivered from Egypt and they were making the journey through the wilderness to the promised land, it says that God provided a pillar of cloud by day, this covering that would give them shade in the day, and then a pillar of fire. By night, that would give them warmth in the cold desert and that would give them guidance to lead them along the journey. And it says that the cloud and by day and the pillar at night would move and, and they would, their goal was to stay underneath the cloud. And so it specifically says there were times whenever the cloud would stop and wherever the cloud, which represented, by the way, the presence of God, and wherever the presence of God would stop, they would stop and they would set up their tent. And sometimes he would remain there one day, sometimes two days, sometimes one week, sometimes two months. And as long as the presence of the Lord stayed, they stayed. But as soon as they began to see the presence of the Lord move, they would pack up their tent and they would go. This is what it looks like for us to live a life that waits on the Lord. It's staying under the cloud of presence and saying, God, we're gonna wait on you. We're gonna move when you move. We're gonna be led where you lead us. And listen, this is a lifestyle that we're called to live. So listen, it's, it's not just for those who humbly wait uh, for them, but it's also for those who are joyfully obedient to him. Joyfully obedient to him. He literally says here, who joyfully work, works righteousness. Uh, to work righteousness simply means to do what pleases the Lord, to walk in his commands, to obey him. It's living a posture of submission where you know that God is in charge. And in the original language, just a, kind of show you what is happening here. In the original language, the tense of the verb here implies a way of life. It's a person who's living their life to honor and please the Lord, to walk in obedience to him. And so he, but he says, it's not just who walk in righteousness, but joyfully walk in righteousness. Joyfully is the key word, because here's the thing, any good Pharisee can, 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 with white knuckles, do what God says he's supposed to do because God said to do it, Right? Like any person can discipline themselves to go, well, I'm gonna do this because this is what Christians do and I hate every minute of it. We wouldn't necessarily say that, but we feel that in our heart. But what God is after is more than just our begrudging obedience. God wants our joyful submission and delighting in his ways. We're gonna talk about that in just a moment. So when he says joyfully works righteousness, what he's saying is, is that he doesn't want us just to go, oh, I got to do it because I'm a Christian. No, no, no. It's looking at God's words and commands and recognizing that true life is found the way God designed life. And it's to seeing the commands and the parameters of God's word that it places around my life, not as something that robs joy from me, but something that gives joy to me who see people who see the law of the Lord not as something that subtracts, but something that adds. To joyfully walk in submission. You know what this, the person that joyfully obeys the Lord, you know what that is? That's a person who delights in pleasing the Lord, who finds joy and pleasure of living life God's way. And some, it's not easy. Because there are times when your flesh, you're like, this feels like it would be so much better. And everything in me, I just want to go and do this. But God's word says, this is what God wants me to do. It's, it's living a life that recognizes while this would feel good for a moment, this brings joy for a lifetime. And God's ways is much better. And so I joyfully, I thank God that he puts guardrails around my life with commands. This is important. Then it moves on to the third. So it's humbly wait for him, those who are joyfully obedient to him, and then those who actively delight in him. So where do you get that? He, he says here, remember you in your ways. Remember you in your ways. Now, I want you to notice something in the text. <clears throat> he doesn't say who remember your ways. Remembering the ways of the Lord is just simply rem- being reminded of the way that God acts, Right? And that's a good thing, right? But that's not what Isaiah says here. He says, remember you in your ways. What is the point? The point is, is that Isaiah is recognizing that God's behavior is an overflow of God's nature. That what God does is driven by who God is. So just to see the actions of God void of the nature and character of God is just a marvel maybe at something he's done. But when you remember him in his ways, now you're savoring the person. Does that make sense? God does not just show love to you. God is love. God does not just act in a gracious way towards you. He does this because at his very core, he is a gracious God. God. God doesn't just show some patience with you. No, 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 no. He's a long-suffering God. So remembering him in his ways is to say this. The the idea of remember here is to think and ponder. So remembering is the idea of delighting, treasuring, pondering, thinking about, "I, I delight in the Lord and his ways I go back to family all the time because it's such an easy connection for me. Like, there are times during the day where my mind at work will just drift and I'll be thinking about my kids. Like, and I don't, nobody has, I don't have to set an alarm clock to be like, hey, at one o'clock, you're gonna think about your kids today. But when I find myself, or my my wife, same way, I I think about her. Through the day, there'll just be thoughts of, man, I I wonder what she's doing right now and, and, man, I'm so grateful for her. And just think about, I love coming home from work. Just sometimes my mind will just drift in those places. And it's not like I've got to be reminded, hey, think about your family today, remember them. Why not? Because I delight in them. Thinking about my kids comes naturally because it's an overflow of my love for them. And so, what Isaiah is showing us is that what God wants from us more than anything is for us to be a people who joyfully obey Him because we delight in Him. He's the source of satisfaction for our soul. And like, like I just think about this. Now don't answer this because every service there's been like this, says, oh yeah, I do this. Like, do you ever catch yourself just drifting off, your mind wandering during the day, just thinking about the goodness of God? Listen, I think, I think if we're honest, we might have moments like that, but they're far and few between because we delight in so many other things. I want you to follow what Isaiah is saying here. Isaiah, watch this. He is saying, we know it's your character because you want to move on our behalf. You don't want to withhold your power and presence. But here's the confession. When he says who, who uh, wait for you, who joyfully walk in righteousness, who, who uh, remember you in your ways. He's saying, th- this is the way in which we put ourselves in the position to receive the blessings of the Lord. And here's Isaiah's point. We've not done this. This is where Isaiah gets to a place that most of us are unwilling to go. And because we're unwilling to go there, that's why we don't see revival in our life, in our families, in our church because it's one thing for us to go, ah, mm, oh, that's awesome, let me write that in my notes. It's another thing for us to deal with the stuff in our life that prohibits us from doing it. Isaiah's gonna get gut level honest with God. In essence, what Isaiah is gonna say is, yes, God, you wanna meet with those who wait for you. Yes, God, you wanna show yourself to those who joyfully walk in righteousness and who remember you in your ways. But he's gonna say, but we don't do that. Therefore, the restraining of your presence has occurred in our life. And, and, and Isaiah is gonna deal with sin. This is something we don't wanna do, but we, we have to if we're gonna see revival. I want you to see what he says next. Isaiah gets gut level honest with God. He says in verse 5b, he says, behold, you were angry and we sinned. And in our sins, we have been a long time. And, and shall we be saved? Now, eyes eyes right here just for a second, I want us to feel the weight of this. Listen, I don't think in American culture we view sin the way that God views sin. We've watered down, we've dismissed, we've, we've played it off, we've swept it under the rug, we've clothed it with religious, spiritual nonsense, but we don't deal with it the way that Isaiah's dealing with it here. I want you to hear what he says here. He says, you were angry and we sinned and we've been in our sin a long time. Let me just translate that for you. This is complete indifference toward the ways of the Lord. Isaiah, in essence, is saying, we knew that if we walked in sin, it would bring you anger, that your wrath and judgment would come upon us. We knew our sin would make you angry, but we sinned anyway and we liked it so much, we stayed there. We've settled down. God, we knew this is offensive to you. We knew that you don't want this for our life. We know that we belong to you. Therefore, this is not the posture of our life. you, 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 You hate and despise these things. But God, even though we knew that, we willfully walked in disobedience and we stayed there because we enjoy it. And then he asks this gut wrenching question, and it's not a question like he's trying to look for an answer. I think this is just the overflow of his heart. And he says, "Shall we be saved?" The point that he's saying, making is this: is that we've rebelled intentionally against you. We knew it was a sin. We did it anyway. We stayed a long time. We settled down. We've been in this thing a long time. We have forsaken you, and if we stay in this condition, we can't be saved. That's his point. Can I just tell you, listen, the hope of the church in America, and I would just say I'm not gonna dismiss us from being a part of that. But the hope for the Church of America is for us to get honest like Isaiah and recognize that far too many of us have let sin in our life and we've enjoyed sin and we've let it settle down and we've excused it and we've downplayed it and we've over spiritualized it and we just kind of made ourselves in a home of sin and a life of sin. And some of us, we even dismiss it by comparing that sin to others. And listen, and here's what Isaiah is saying listen, we've got to recognize that this has angered the hand of the Lord. And this has put a restraint, a separation between us and the presence and the power of God in our life. And listen, until we as a church in America recognize this, listen to me, there is no hope for the church in America. And I know for many of you are thinking, okay, pastor, I thought the scripture says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And it won't. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Listen, the church will not cease to be. It just sometimes will cease to be in certain locations. The gates of hell not prevailing against it has nothing to do with the fact that our sin doesn't have a cause. Listen, the gates of hell not prevailing against it means that the church will go on regardless of what culture does, but there are certain locations because of the heart of the church not coming clean before the Lord, that church will cease to be. And listen, there are large portions on the map of areas in our world that we as as Christians would label as unreached people. And do you realize that a thousand years ago they used to burn red hot for the gospel? So what, what, what led them from being churches that were filled up, walking in the Great Commission and the Holy Spirit power to being places that are not even reached? Let me tell you what happened. Sin got into the church. The presence of God left the church. The church got settled into that and the church died. And I'm telling you, listen, that is the direction we are moving in our nation. And unless we come to that place of recognition in our lives individually, our church as a whole, and then the nation collectively, well, listen, we, we're gonna have the same faith. And listen, we, we're not the exception. We're not the exception. Do you, like, we're not. The, the church in Communist China is the largest, fastest growing church in the world and in, in really in human history. And, and I think it was in 1950 they, they predicted that there were less than 1 million Christians in China. Now there are like 200 million. It's 60-something, 70 years, right? The rapid growth of the gospel. Listen, God does not need the Church of America for the Great Commission to continue to flourish. But he wants the church in America. But apart from repentance and confession and getting our heart right with God, we won't see it. Now, we gotta see sin the way that God sees sin. Look at how God sees sin. Uh, Verse six, Isaiah gets really honest, he begins to um, use similes or these illustrations to describe the effect of sin in the life of his people. Look what he says in verse six, here's the first one. We have all become like one who is unclean. Isaiah is getting really honest about his sin. He's not trying to make it sound better or prettier, He is getting honest about his sin. We have become like one who is unclean. The phrase unclean would have been maybe understood as we become like a leper. Uh, Those who uh, who got leprosy in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they were considered unclean. And so a person who had leprosy, they would have to declare, if anyone got in a certain proximity, unclean, unclean. In other words, I am unworthy to meet with God or his people. And spiritually speaking, Isaiah is saying, we are not just people with a little sin in our life. We are like lepers. We are unfit to to fellowship with God. We are unfit to fellowship with his people. That's how serious our sin is. Here's description number two. All of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Now, this is a little embarrassing. This would have been embarrassing when Isaiah said it. When he says all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments, the phrase polluted garments there, literally translated is garment of menstruation. Garment of menstruation. It was considered to be vile and fully defiled because it was flowing from the fallen nature of humanity. So in other words, he's saying, listen, in all of your good deeds, they're like a a menstrual garment. That's what your good deeds are like. Now, follow what he's saying here. He doesn't say your bad deeds are like this. He's, he's getting to the depravity of, of really where we are spiritually. He says, it's not, you're not so bad that your bad is bad. You're so bad that your good is even bad that even the righteous things that you do come and overflow from a heart that's bent towards self and sin and, and making yourself the center of everything. So even these things that people go, oh man, they're an awesome person. God sees beyond the action, understands the motive of the heart and therefore says, I'm seeing beyond the behavior and, the, and I'm seeing the heart that's motivating the behavior and listen, it's broken too. So he says, Look, that, that thing you get applauded for by others, it disgusts me. Isaiah's is getting honest. and listen, I told you this is a heavy sermon, but listen, this is the barrier. We gotta deal with it. He, his third illustration is this, it's really four, but I'm gonna put the, the, those into, into one because they go hand in hand. He says, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. He says, spiritually speaking, our sin has caused us to wither like a leaf in the fall. What happens in leaf and fall? It detaches from the tree, the source of life, and what immediately happens? It shrivels up, right, and becomes dry and lifeless. And then when the winds blow through in the fall, what happens to that leaf? Wherever the wind carries carries it, that's where it goes. So here's what Isaiah is saying. Our sin has sucked the life out of us, and now our sin controls us just like the wind controls the leaf. So brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you this morning and challenge you with this. Listen, that pet sin in your life, that thing that you think, man, I got this thing under cover and I'm managing it and I'm controlling it and I've figured a way that I can still live in some of these things and not get caught and not get in your trouble. Listen to me, you think you're managing your sin but your sin is managing you. You're not in control of anything. And this is the great deception of the enemy. He 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 allows sin to get in your life. He causes you to enjoy that sin. The joy of the Lord is being sucked out of your life and he knows it and you know it but somehow you become convinced that man I've got this thing and the whole time that thing's got you. And this is what Isaiah is confessing. And, and see, he, this is why, listen, this is, this is the state of God's people in Isaiah 64, and this is the state of God's people today. This is what our churches look like today, church. There's so much ungodliness in our life that we have just accepted and embraced and welcomed into our life, and it's sucking the life out of us spiritually. It is restraining the blessings of the power and the presence of God in our life, and ultimately, it's destroying the church And until we see our sin as God sees our sin, we can't deal with our sin. And if we don't deal with our sin, we will never see revival. And see, this is what sin does. It it causes us not to be aware of how dark we really are. It's what it does, and it it prohibits us. So this past year, I've been championing, guys, we gotta pursue the face of God. We gotta seek the face of God, and only just a remnant, a handful of people have recognized that and begin to come and to gather and to call in the name of the Lord with the people of God. And listen, the the evidence that we need revival is the lack of people who are actually joining and praying for revival. And I know, and even in our church, like even right now, there's some that have just been resistant because the pastor is challenging me to do it. Can I just tell you how wicked that is? To not pursue the Lord because you don't want someone telling you to pursue the Lord. Like you know how depraved that is? This is the hearts of the people, look at verse seven. This is the issue. He says there is no one who calls upon the name of the Lord who rouses himself to take hold of it. Isaiah is saying, we are spiritually asleep and we don't even recognize it. We're not even willing to call on the name of the Lord to rouse ourselves up and take hold of him. Yes, the presence and the power of God is gone from the nation and we are in our sins, but we don't even call on the name of the Lord for him to change that in our lives and in our church. Ray Orland says this about this passage. He says, when is revival necessary? His answer is, when prayer has lost its power and other ways of coping seem more helpful, when, sleeping, when sleepy Christians go through the motions without rousing themselves to lay hold of God, revival is necessary. Wouldn't you agree with me that that's what describes the modern church today? This is where we are. And, and in our indifference to God has Told God that he's unwanted, therefore God has withdrawn himself from us. Look what he says. He says, you have hidden your face from us. Now, this next phrase is powerful, and I don't want you to miss this. He says, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. In, um, in, in, in the world of theology, there are phrases that describe the wrath of God. There's one of them is what's called the active wrath of God. The active of judgment of God. The active judgment of God is when you see, like, God just raining down fire in the scriptures, right? Like, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie to the Holy Spirit, they drop dead at the feet of Peter the Apostle. That's the active wrath of God. But the Bible also shows us that there is a passive wrath of God. And that is what Isaiah is dealing with here. When he says, you have made us melt away in the hand of our own iniquities, what he's saying is the passive wrath of God is when God says, you you want the sin? I'll give you the sin. Go live it up, and the thing that we choose to pursue, the sin that we choose, ends up destroying us. That's the passive, passive wrath of God, when he says, okay, I'll give you what you want, not realizing that what we want is actually what's gonna kill us. So when he says that we, we've melt away in the hand of our iniquities, he's saying, God, you gave us what we want and it's destroying us. That's heavy, is it not? So can I tell you, listen, I, I just want you to know, if, if you're a believer in here and you're like, you're not gonna get away with your sin. Like it's it's gonna destroy you. And just because you got a pass right now, don't Don't take that as a pass. It could be that you're melting away in the hand of your own iniquities. This this stuff is not easy. So we gotta recognize that the pet sin that we're keeping hidden in our life is destroying us. It's quenching the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. And until we become honest and, and come clean before the Lord, we will not see the power of his presence in our life or the church. So listen to me, bitterness Like in this room, bitterness, adultery, fornication, unforgiveness, gossip, pornography, pride, resentment, anger, lying. The list could go on and on. Listen, these are areas that must be addressed. We must come clean before the Lord. Sin repels the presence of God and we cannot see genuine movement of God until the church gets honest with God about the sin in our life. There's a book called Ablaze I've been reading this past year a man by the name of Dale and this is what he says. He says, the greatest cost of revival may be our pride. Are we willing to agree with God about everything he reveals to be contrary to his way? Are we ready to surrender all of our secret hidden sins and come to the cross in brokenness, repentance, and humility? Are we willing to stop transferring the blame of our problems and take personal responsibility of our own failures? What stands between a church and revival? I would say it would be this, undealt with sin. Undealt with sin. So some of you are like, man, this is heavy. And I thought, like, I was really glad I came to church. Not so much, right? So what's our hope? See, there's good news because of the character of God. So you see your condition. Now you understand why God's character is so important in our life. Once you see what Isaiah does, say, what do we do? Here's what Isaiah does. I think we can follow him. Verse eight, but now, but now, oh Lord, you are our father. Isaiah is remembering the covenant promise of God. He's saying, this is our condition. We are sinful We are broken. Your presence has been removed. We are in a serious trouble. But God, I know that you haven't changed. You are still a covenant-keeping God. We changed, but you didn't. You are our Father. Listen to this. And we are clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. So here's what you find here. Listen to me. What's the response of Isaiah? And what should be our response? The answer is repent and return. Repent and return. And repenting and returning comes on the basis, on the foundation of grace. You are a father. You've made a covenant with us. And so what does Isaiah do? Isaiah doesn't make excuses. He just says, listen, don't be angry with us forever and don't hold our iniquity against us. You, even though you should, what is Isaiah doing here? He is pleading with God on the basis of the grace of God. He's pleading with God on the basis of the grace of God. Repent and return. See so what is that? I want you to lock in. I know there's a lot of stirring in the room, and I'm gonna ask you to settle for a moment. What does it mean to repent? There's two steps of repentance. Number one, we see Isaiah do both. One is confession. Getting honest. This is what Isaiah's done. That's what he's done since verse five, right? This is where we are, God. You know it. I know it. And I'm just gonna say it. So confession, listen to this. Confession is not merely acknowledging that sin is in our life confession is seeing our sin the way that God sees our sin. It is agreeing with God. The word confess literally means to agree with. Isaiah is agreeing with God. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. No one calls on your name. I mean, he is getting honest. He's describing The condition, he's seeing the sin the way God sees the sin. And listen, that's what confession is. It's seeing your sin the way God sees your sin. It's not concealing it. It's not blaming your mama. It's not blaming whatever in your life. It is you going, this is who I am, God. And I know you know it. And I want you to know that I know. And I agree with you about everything you say about these choices that I make. Confession. That's step one, confession. Step two is submission. That's what repentance is. It's confession and submission. This is why Isaiah's next phrase was what? You are the potter. We are the clay. We are the work of your hands. What, what, the, what does the clay do in the process of becoming a masterpiece? What's the answer is? Absolutely nothing. A clay just is in the hands of the potter, for the potter to do what he desires. You know what a good potter does when there's a lump of clay they're trying to make into a masterpiece? If there's a lump in the clay, he'll cut it away. Not to harm it, but to make it more beautiful. At times, because it gets out of balance, he'll actually crush whatever he's making in order to remake it into something more beautiful. And here's what that demands of the clay. Simply be Submitted to the hands of the potter. This is what Isaiah is doing here. We've confessed God but now we're saying you are our father. In fact, you're the potter, we're the clay. God, we want you to mold and shape and design and change. If you gotta crush us, crush us, but God, we are fully surrendered. Whatever you wanna do in me, I want you to do it. Whatever you wanna do through us, we want you to do it. God, we just wanna be fully submitted to you. And listen to me, church, without confession and submission, there is no genuine repentance. It doesn't matter how many tears you cry, promises you make, or intentions that you walk away with. There has to be confession, acknowledging it, dealing with it, rooting it out of our life, and then submitting, saying, God, I wanna live differently. I wanna wanna live a different way. And we do this, we come to him because he's gracious. Scripture says if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What What does that mean? It means that he won't be angry forever, and he won't remember your iniquity. Isn't that beautiful? And this is what we need. Dale Pheasantfield went on to say this. He says, In the manifest presence of a holy God, we come to see ourselves as we really are and to test every deviation from his righteous character in our lives. Revival requires that we see ourselves and our sin as God does and that we cooperate with him in rooting out of our lives all that is unholy, a revived church is a pure church. So here's the response this morning. We're going to take a couple of moments and just worship and humble our hearts before the Lord. We are beginning this journey together starting today. This resource that we're providing, Returning to Holiness, is a book we want you to go through the introduction today. And then starting tomorrow, there will be a session every day. It'll last, take you about an hour if you take it serious. You have the resource, your Bible, a pen, and a notebook. And it'll take you about an hour. And each day, it's going to deal with an area of sin in your life. And and, and this takes you beyond surface level. It's going to be some deep cleaning. And I'm asking you as your pastor, join me in this journey. We're going to fast. Whichever fast that you wanna do, we got a resource for that that'll come to you when you register for the fast and for this season of cleansing. Here's what you're gonna get. You're gonna get a fasting guide, how to use the book, and you're gonna get a PDF copy of the book. If you've already got a hard copy, you're the lucky one, we're out of those. Um, but the PDF version is identical and if you need us to print it, we'll print it for you. We just want you to, to take this journey. Uh, you can register, I think there's a QR code that may be putting up uh, for you you can register for that. We ask you to register it so we can get you the needed resources uh, for this journey that we'll be taking. But here's what we're gonna do this morning. I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet and we're gonna take just a few moments of preparation. And, and, and listen, t- the, the week of humbling ourselves starts right now. So this altar is gonna be open and I'm inviting you to leave your seat, come and just kneel. And here's what you're going to pray this morning. God, whatever you wanna do in my life, I'm surrendering. This week as we take this journey together, God, I'm asking you, to empty me, purify me, and revive me. So today starts that day. There are gonna be some decision encouragers in the aisles. If you need a relationship with Jesus, if you're uncertain of your relationship with Jesus, come and talk to one of these adults. They'll pray with you and help you begin a new journey with Jesus. But for those who know Christ, listen, this altar is available. Let's, let's, Let's worship and let's cry out to God and prepare our hearts to return to holiness this week. Father, we ask right now that you would move in power. Do what only you can do. God, we are asking for revival. And Lord, a revived church is a pure church. Purify us, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.